get all this stuff? And they're like, uh, I don't know. If you only knew. Yes. All right. Um, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I have to tell you that uh, along the way, it, it, it's always, uh, I always enjoy preparing these lessons and digging through things and everything. This particular lesson has caught my attention like few things have in, in quite a while. Um, and and I, I've mentioned before that part of what's, what's paving the way for this was the church in its desire for transparency decided with the Joseph Smith Paper Project they were going to put everything online. They were going to try and be as open and transparent as we knew how to be uh, uh, in a way that we hadn't really been in the past. Uh, in doing that, they hired a team of uh, professional PhD historians to put all of this stuff together. Uh, and they had these guys going through everything, these number of these professors have now, as the project was winding down, they've now moved to, to a professorship at BYU, uh, but they bring a level of scholarship and study and digging that we have never had in the church before. As, as one of these scholars mentioned, uh, you're about to see a volcano that there is just the information is coming as they are digging and searching for sources and stuff and so I literally read two books uh, this week trying to kind of bring myself up to date on not what I not just what I knew but what is now available that has not been available just in the last five years uh, so there's a bit there's there's a shape to church history and there's a sea change that is occurring and and what I wanted to do in in starting today uh, these were a couple of observations that I had ahead of this. So I'm going to give you the kind of the, tell you ahead of time the bottom line, <laughs> then we'll walk it through it, then you'll see kind of how we got there. Okay? So here's my observations. It's important that we understand well the details of Joseph Smith's long and trying process to obtain and finally print the Nephite records. <laughs> As we take the time to do it, we will see clearly the tremendous, almost impossible struggle that Moroni and Joseph had to transform a, a raw plowboy into a prophet. This battle to against his nature, against his culture, even at times his family, was a bigger struggle than you know. And it ought to be inspiring to us. Uh, that's why it's nice to do it. This is a church history class. Normally in Gospel Doctrine Institute, we would be looking more at the doctrinal side of what Moroni said and did. We're gonna, this is the, there is another powerful doctrinal study just in the details that are emerging and the details of this. And this is one of them. What it took to transform a raw plowboy into a prophet. Moroni worked long and hard uh, to help young Joseph battle against his circumstances, his culture, his nature, to be worthy of the trust placed in him by the ancient writers of the records. We're going to talk about that in a second. Um, Thus, the more we see the details of these events, the more the Book of Mormon miracle is revealed to our understanding, and the more clearly we will see the prophet miracle emerge as well. The transformation of, the, of a 19th century backwoods boy into the prophet of the restoration may be the biggest miracle of all. We should walk out of this today understanding what a miracle it was and the work and energy and effort it took to transform this boy to the prophet that died at Carthage uh, because they are miles different from each other. 
Okay? It's also a testament of what the Lord can do with any of us if we will just let him take over. We look at ourselves sometimes and we go, this is just me. I can't help myself. This is just the way I am. I can't fix me. And, and he says, no, you can't fix you. <laughs> Let me do it. And I will transform you not into what you think you were going to be, but I will transform you into what is going to be a more powerful version of you. But you've got to let me do it. And it is no overnight fix. And, and you're going to see the battles that Joseph went through in this. Okay? So, does that make sense? Okay. That's lesson number one. Is the transformation of boy to prophet. And we're going to watch the process that took. Here's the second observation. The Lord's challenge here was to transfer revelations given to ancient prophets through the mind and words of a modern prophets to people living in the modern world. We've talked about that what a, as we're going through the Book of Mormon, what it took to get it from their hearts and minds through Joseph Smith's minds into our heart now. That is no easy process. Now, the Lord draws extraordinary men and women from the world and culture in which they live. And I would probably have changed that to say prepared men and women. They're not always extraordinary, but he will make them extraordinary. Now, so here's the second part of what we're going to be studying today. The Lord's pattern is to take ordinary physical objects, just like ordinary people, and endow them with divine power when used by his chosen servants. So we're going to talk about two transformations. Boy to prophet, object to um, uh, powerful conduit of the spirit. And we're going to watch a transformation of both. And they're not farly remain from each other because it's a transformation of both of us into something that the Lord can use. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Satan tries constantly to thwart the Lord's plan by using pale opposites to mock divine patterns. Okay. So, so ahead of that, let me, let me pick on the objects uh, for a second first. Because it's going to be important, really important that we understand the physical nature of the, of the Lord's patterns. Um, in our sacrament meetings... Could we not, if we want to remember the Savior and renew our covenants with the Savior, couldn't we just take ten minutes and just quietly reflect on the power of the Savior and, and the atonement? Couldn't we do that? We could. But the Lord's pattern was to, to utilize what? Physical bread and water or wine. Why would he do that? Rather than just say, it's a spiritual thing, why would we need an object? Yeah. Because we learn by object lessons. We learn by Why? Tangible. It's tangible, something we can touch. Just like with baptism. Couldn't we just say, I commit to do it without doing the baptism thing? Okay, you're right. So it's symbolic, it's physical, it's tangible. With the bread and water, it becomes part of us. We're taking it in. in. A real way. Sure. Tangible, I guess. Sure. Mm -hmm. Incorporates more of our senses. 
Our senses are involved in learning it. Okay, he's doing all that, right? Now, I had a, a recent convert uh, not too long ago told me, because he loved the idea of the sacrament, and, and he said, you know, when the sacrament is done, it looks like there's, there's some bread left over. They ought to take that bread and like bake it into a casserole and take that to the widows and orphans and, and, and hand that out to the poor. Okay, now let me ask you, would you... How would you feel about taking the extra bread uh, from the sacrament and putting it in a casserole? Sacred. It's what? Sacred. Okay, in what, in what way? It's just a piece of bread. It's been uh, blessed over it's, uh, the priest at the power. Ah, so, so here's a, a normal piece of bread that the priests have prayed over and now it has become sacred bread. It's different from all other bread. In fact, it's even different from itself before the blessing. Okay? Yeah? So what's done with the excess sacred bread? I know, they throw it out, right? I know, they throw it out. Because we're not going to use it for anything else. You'd think we ought to find another way to, you know, burn it or something. <laughs> okay? But, but we have a sense that we're not going to, we don't want to use it for anything else. In fact, uh, I remember a couple of times as a teacher, you know, we would get done and, and we break up the bread. We had a lady that would bake this wonderful bread for the sacrament and we would carefully place the slices in there. We'd have about three slices left and then we would just kind of gorge ourselves back in the thing we know we all you know we need that and even then I felt a little guilty it hadn't been blessed but she had prepared this for the sacrament and I thought I shouldn't be eating this bread <laughs> it was intended for something else okay yeah on the other hand if you're in a survival situation which a lot of our pioneers were uh, they might have. Now think about when, when uh, Ezra Tapp Benson talked about uh, after World War II and they were trying to prepare the sacrament, what were they using for the, the bread? Crushes. Potato peels. Peelings. So they were taking aver uh, ordinary potato peels, but then the priest blessed them and made them sacred and now they're no, they're no longer ordinary potato peels. Okay? Notice what the Lord is doing. There's a history of taking uh, ordinary objects. Then under the power of the priesthood and the spirit, changing that object into something that can be used to further the Lord's work. And in this case, we're taking an ordinary piece of bread. And what happens when you come ready, the priest blesses it, and you spiritually are prepared to then take the bread in? What, does, what effect does that have on you? Transfer. It transforms what? You. It's, you're, transform, you're transformed by what was an ordinary piece of bread blessed in this way to, to make changes in your, your uh, status with the Lord. It, it's renewing your covenant. So I guess what I'm saying to you, it's not just symbolic. The, these material objects that the Lord uses are not just symbolic. They are tangible. They're physical. We, we use our senses. That's all true. But there's another aspect where they have been elevated to something beyond their normality. Okay. Plus you reach out. Uh, it's, it's your senses, but plus like reaching out like the lady would touch the hem of Christ. Yes, You're right. You're reaching out for the bread. You're reaching out for the water physically and spiritually. And that also is part of it as well. So we have to physically do something. Okay? Right. So, all right. 
Well, let me, yeah, Tim? A couple of comments. One, when I was a missionary, Stephen Covenant would come and speak. He was the mission rep. Uh-huh. And he said, in his opinion, when we're baptized, we actually undergo a physical change. Mm-hmm. And uh, secondly, I think that, uh, that using physical objects to represent spiritual things right. allows people who may not be as sensitive to the spiritual to have something physical to relate to. Sure. So. So there, it, that's why I say, so there is a side of this that it becomes symbolic and that it's a great way to teach us to our physical minds. But I need you to see that there is also, um, that there's, a, there's a miraculous side to this where something is occurring and we want the miracles. We want a religion with miracles in it. Yeah. It's an action that shows a commitment. That we physically have to do something to show that commitment. And we're going to participate in something. We're going to get into the temple in, in just a second. Okay? So, let me give you an example, some examples of these. Uh, the very first physical object that we know of that the Lord used was... Coat of skins. They could have just made a covenant and a commitment and leave the Garden of Eden. But he says, I'm going to give you something physical and tangible... Think of your own garments. I'm going to give you something physical and tangible that means something that is now makes you different and makes that garment different. In fact, remember the history, and we've mentioned this a couple of times. Um, tradition uh, in the Hebrew lore, the, the Mishnah and even the Babylonian Talmud suggests that uh, this coat of skins was handed down uh, father to son, father to son, and that at one point it's stolen from Noah given to Nimrod, uh, who then becomes a great hunter because he puts on the coat of skins, he walks out among the animals, they smell the Garden of Eden, they draw close, and then he shoots them. <laughs> Okay. That in other words, there was a belief that this was just not a symbolic coat. There was something powerful about this. Okay. So it had been transformed. Okay. Coat of skins. Uh, how about how about Moses? Yeah. I'm about that. When you mentioned that, I was wondering those animals would have been killed in the Garden of Eden, right? Yeah. Which animal do you think was maybe killed? By the way. Side note. <laughs> Yes, it was a, probably a lamb. That's the, so, and and that's always struck me powerfully. That and who would have and who would have killed the lamb? More than one lamb. Well, a couple of lambs. <laughs> yeah, but who would have sacrificed the lamb? Jehovah. No, this coat of skins was given to them. Who sacrificed the lamb? Jehovah. The lamb did. The lamb sacrificed the lamb. Does that make sense? And he would have understood the sacrifice his father would have go th gone through to sacrifice him. There's a, there's a beautiful symbolism here. Yeah. That's how death entered the world. And, that, and death came by the Savior who, you know. Now, is that doctrinal? You're going to find that at heard and taught in general conference? No. But you kind of put that together and that's our best possible scenario. But you're exactly right. Okay. Uh, Moses' staff. Anything magical about Moses' staff that worked really well in the, in the court of Pharaoh? Sure. Okay. Then what happens when Moses dies? 
goes to Aaron, right? And Aaron gives it to Josh, Joshua. Anything magical about that staff? We raise it, the Israelites are winning. We drop it, the Israelites are losing. Win, lose, win, lose. There's, in other words, there's power in this object when used by priesthood authority. Okay. Now we just said, that's why I say there's a there's a jump here you have to make to say the Lord uses objects. Okay. Yeah. With that snake on top, you know, in the Garden of Eden, the snake was evil. Yes. When the people looked on that snake on the staff, they would be healed from the poison. Yeah, we could go into a long little discourse on the fact that it, it kind of looks like from, especially when you're looking like in, uh, with Quetzalcoatl in, uh, among the Mayans, that the winged serpent was indicative of, of, of the god. That there's a pretty good chance that maybe the the snake is actually eternal a wing snake may be eternally symbolic of the savior and that Satan co-opted it in some way. That's why he has to go on to the dust. Anyway, different story. Um, all right. If if you were going to walk into a room and they said, "Hey, there is a there is a cruise of oil sitting here," or it's just the barrel. Oh, really? But this was the one that Elijah blessed so that it never ran out. Would you be interested? Be kind of cool, wouldn't it? There's something magical, or there's something extraordinary or miraculous about it's just a cruise of oil, but it doesn't run out. Wow. Go check that thing out. Okay? Yeah. Drawing upon your experience on the High Council, you probably saw hundreds of missionaries go out. Yeah. Ordinary 1890 barrels. Commonly, the parents are asked what change they've seen, and oftentimes they're unable to recognize it. Yeah. So you take a normal experience of like 18, 24 months away from home, but elevated under a, a factor of consecration or See, we start putting this together. That's exactly right on. That's why I say, if I were going to rename today's class, it would be transformation. It's the transformation of ordinary objects into something miraculous and the transformation of people into miraculous people. And watch them run side by side uh, as, as we're going along. Uh, thank you, President. That's exactly right. And, and the idea that we can all ultimately be changed. Okay? Um, and we could go, and, and so we could go on and on and on about all, any other objects you can think about that take on kind of a uh, miraculous kind of thing? Consecrated oil? We take regular olive oil that you might be able to cook with, and then in a matter of a few minutes, we can actually set that olive oil apart to be used in blessings. And, now, and then you never use it for cooking again, because it has been set apart out of the world to perform spiritual, powerful things. Wonderful. Yeah. I'm wondering though, like the sacrament, if, if someone who wasn't righteous or not remember, took it, they wouldn't have the effect of the spirituality on the other side of our preparation with that. Exactly right. In the same way, though, that if somebody took all consecrated olive oil and they were a non-member and they were just going to use it, there's no efficacy, right? It's the meeting of those two, the transformed person and the transformed object coming together to create the miracle. And you need both pieces. 
Okay, great point. Yeah. I was just pointing that out earlier too. You know, the, the story of Joseph is, is a long story. It's not a short story. <laughs> and it's the same thing in the church too. I think all of us has been in the church. We see that the church is better today than it was when we first remember it. Yeah. And it's the same way for us too as individuals. Uh, when we go to the temple, you know, there's all of these sequences of events, but they are all a progression. And, and they're all to our sanctification. You know, I think it's very, very interesting when, uh, uh, when Moses set apart, you know, the head of the temple, and it says that they put garments on him, and then it said they sanctified him. He was made holy by virtue of the process. Yeah. Clothing. And it's the same way for each of us. Each of us, as we consecrate, dedicate, and set ourselves apart, we become holy. And we become transformed. Yeah, and become sanctified. Yeah. Book of Mormon itself. Yes. Somebody mentioned that. That sometimes the Book of Mormon is seen as um, it's the content. But isn't there times that the Book of Mormon is also an object? That this is, this is the transforming piece for us. People get testimonies by reading it. Yeah. And remember when the Book of Mormon first comes out, we'll talk about this more in the next couple of weeks, and the New York Times is going, it's scurrilous, it's horrible, it's, it's, a, it's a fraud, and they'd never read it. They'd never even seen a copy of it. They just knew that it existed. The fact that this object was on the earth was, a, was an object of scorn because it was just, its, it's existence was a problem. Yeah. Years ago, there was a young lady in Yeah, just touching the object. That's why I say sometimes the Book of Mormon becomes a, a sacred object in and of itself. The temple itself. The temple itself. You ever just want to go? Um, I remember the, the story of, that's told of uh, a man at the one of the guards at the Salt Lake Temple years ago, uh, and he's standing there and he looks down and there are two little boys uh, standing there and he says, um, "Can I help you?" And he says, "Yeah, it's my little brother's." eighth birthday and I want him to touch the temple so absolutely come on so they come in so little brother can just walk up and touch the temple and connect the holiness that is there okay and the temple was just granite blocks that were put together just built it's a building until it was set apart and then it becomes some it becomes a house of God and it becomes a sacred object yeah Yes. That we have some belief that this object will be transformative in in right. in me and in in the purpose that it, absolutely yeah. An illustration of that was when I was baptized in the tabernacle in Salt Lake City on Temple Square. Yeah. Um, immediately after I was baptized, um, and came out. I went over, and at that time they didn't have the wall around the temple. You could go actually go into. I went actually touched the temple, and I felt a sensation coming through my. Sure. And that shows you what the effect it might have. Yeah, you were prepared, you were able, and then you draw in that power. Absolutely. Stone becomes a superstar. A hat becomes a translation. Okay, don't jump too fast here. <laughs> yeah. I have a question for you. Is uh, I hope I can explain well. How do, um, how do we see, uh, and when people ask us, what's the difference when we see those 
divine object compare us how we see that those divine object in our heart versus the other religion maybe they some religion worship a crystal skeleton yeah and the, what are the difference when you know like when teaching people and also when we see like the temple is holy book of mormon holy and how can i make sure myself as a member i don't become a crystal skeleton worshiper <laughs> Exactly. Uh, I, I do. And uh, when people, I do have the experience, like when I explain those things to people who are non-members, they kind of cannot grasp, grasp the concept, like are we worshipping those things as if worshiping? There we go. Or, yeah, I mean, she, okay, here's what she's saying. The problem is, is not just, it's how we see sacred objects and are we worshiping that. And then we try and explain it to non-members who come from so different, because they may come from a, from a background where they, where they do worship relics. The Greek Orthodox uh, Church tends to worship have a lot of worship towards uh, Mary relics, for instance, and they are worshiping, and so and so they're coming. Or let's say you're atheist or something, and you look at it, and you know you're you're worshiping rocks. No, we're not worshiping rocks. And, well, you are, you know, and it's, so they're going to see it through their perception, and and it's going to be tainted by one more thing. Um, let's see. Let me go. Okay. So. Part of what happens here, too, is that Satan always has his pale opposites, okay? And he's going to use other objects, and this is, what, this is what's going to confuse them, okay? So we have, for instance, up here the, uh, the Stone of Schoon, which is, uh, which is venerated in Great Britain as the Jacob's Stone, the, the Ebenezer that he placed, that was then brought to... Uh, uh, Great Britain uh, is sitting at, at this uh, in this picture is sitting under uh, the king's throne because you ordain you transform the king or queen by having them sit on the throne that sits on the stone of Schoon which literally makes the monarch of England an heir to the throne of David there's the connection back now Long battle, we, and I've shown you pictures before, where finally Scotland says it was our stone before it was England's stone, you know, uh, and Edward stole it from us, so finally they took the stone of Schoon back to Scotland where it exists. But it's where, it's where British monarchs, but they were tied to an object, and the object gave them power, and an object gave them the right to rule. We're going to talk about that one in a second, yeah. When I was in sixth grade, one of my classmates who was not LDS said, Your church is rich. I said, How do you mean? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. That was Joseph's struggle, by the way, too. So, uh, and then uh, again, when we were in in uh, Istanbul, it's nice to go into where the, that was the um, uh, the uh, emperor's palace of the Ottoman Empire, and and there are guards all over the place, so you can go in and see the sacred relics. Okay, and you go in and you see the sacred relics, em, uh, emblematic of the, the the sultan's kingship and power. And so that's when you actually it turns out this, the uh, staff of Moses is there in Istanbul. 
sort of. <laughs> or, the, or, the, or David's sword is there. Okay, this is David's sword, this is Moses' staff, here's uh, the bones of John the, the Revelator. Okay, in other words, why, are they, why have they got sacred relics? They're trying to the power transfer that comes, whoever has the objects has the power. Okay? I think the confusion comes when they start worshiping objects versus worshiping the Savior. Yes. Who created these objects? So, so, see where the see where the and, and so for them they're going to pull those together and then say I don't know who's the king but the king is going to be whoever has Moses' staff must be the king guy. And for the Nephites, how did they know if they weren't if they weren't really active or something? Who would they know who the king was? The sword of Laban. Who's got the Leahona? Who's got the records? Who's got the sword of Laban? There's the dude. And who has the seer stones? Will also play a role in that. Yeah. And they were denying the power of it. Because it really had to be the person that. Yes. Yeah. And so they would sometimes they'd place more power in. That's why I believed all along that uh, uh, King Lamoni's belief in Ammon when he rolls into town. Uh, I believe that King that uh, Ammon. Remember, he's got his sword and he's killing all the Lamanites at the at the water. Okay, he's got a sword, right? And he's the son of the king. Either he has a sword of Laban or he's got a replica of the sword of Laban. So that would say one of the reasons that they were going to stay safe among the Lamanites, he's got the sword. He's got the authority and we're going to put power in that. Don't mess with that guy. Yeah? I think that tie into authority being what makes the object that power is key. We see lots of times where those objects have lost their power because the authority no longer exists. Right. But in an apostate form, we might still say, somebody else might say, but if I can get the object, I will have whatever power it had. Okay? You didn't know this would be a lesson about objects, did you? Okay? Yeah? It seems to me, I'm sitting here thinking about all this, it seems to be, it seems to me that the purpose, there has to be a reason why something is transformed. It isn't just so that it can be, you know, we don't worship the sacrament plates. I mean, the plates. Right, yeah, the right, right. Um, all of this is for our betterment and our edification. Sure, when, when done righteously. When right, yes, all of that. She it, says there has to be a purpose for these things. And so it seems to me like worshiping the bones of someone doesn't, doesn't do you anything. I mean, it's just, it's almost like superstition. Right. You're giving power to something that can't, help you spiritually or help you progress or any of that sort of thing. So I think that is probably the difference. If we think about everything we do, the baptism, work right. the temple, the sacrament, the blessing, uh, all of that's involved in that is to serve us. It does serve us. But isn't it interesting at another level, for instance, if you're a devout uh, Muslim, somewhere in your lifetime, where are you going to want to go? Mecca. Mecca. Why are you going to go to Mecca? It's just another town. What does Mecca have? The Kabbalah stone. The, 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 the earth navel. It's, it's, there, it's, that, it's the connection. It's where Muhammad was. It was, and we're going to do the Hajj around, 
around the Kabbalah stone and then we're going to walk out of we're going to walk away from that experience in Mecca and be better people the idea is to recommit to Allah and be better Okay, I think there can be a spiritual transformation even at, even at that level. But there, but for them, there's power in the Kabbalah stone. Uh, that's why they're gonna. That's why they get worried when we start talking about the Dome of the Rock because they, because that's where Muhammad left from. We want to hang on to that thing. Okay, but there's power in that. Okay. All right, and then, you know, even Hollywood gets into it and the history of, uh, if you want to get rid of evil, get rid of the vampire, you need a cross. You know, you're going to reward that dude off, but you've got to have a cross. You've got to have an object that's going to drive away evil. Okay? <laughs> now, the question... <laughs> Here's, the, here's the, the thing that can happen. Is there a possibility in some cases uh, of like what we call the placebo effect? In other words, there's no inherent power in the person or the object, but because people put their faith in it, it will heal them. I think sometimes that happens. Okay, sure. There is power in the person, though. You said there was not, but yet the power is there to imagine and to believe. And, and lift them to heal themselves. Uh, yep. Okay. So, um, we do any of this in the church? <laughs> Tell me a story about the handkerchief. Somebody, somebody was ill and just gave a handkerchief to somebody. <laughs> there you go. Go fix it. Okay. Remember, we're in, we're in Nauvoo. Uh, the, the swamp hasn't been drained yet. Everybody is, is dying of malaria. And they're spread out. If, you, if you've ever been to Nauvoo and you've seen the old Joseph Smith house across from the Nauvoo house and it's right there on Water Street and the house sits up here in the first place that Joseph lived uh, and then there's a sloping grass and it goes right down into kind of the swamp in the Mississippi uh, about 50 yards away okay that whole area right in front of the Smith house at one point in the middle of the summer there is filled with people sick and and dying and they're just bringing people going we need Joseph to heal them and they're just wheeling people up so they're on stretchers and blankets and tents all covered all around this house and, and Joseph's sick in the house and finally he goes enough of this and he's healed and he gets up and they start healing and then he heals others and they heal someone else and you get this exponential healing going on but there are people on the other side of the river over on the, on the Zarahemla side uh, on the, what is now the Keokuk side where they need to be able to get over there but they can't get there they don't have time to do it and to Wilford Woodruff uh, he gives, he pulls out and he gives them that handkerchief. And he says, if you will go wipe them with this handkerchief, they will be healed. And he goes, fine. And he takes the handkerchief, he gets in a skiff, he rows across the Mississippi, gets to the other side, starts wiping people with this, and they start getting healed. Okay? Vicki, you had an experience like that you were going to talk about. Can I put you on the spot with, with an object like that? Is that Okay. With the warts and stuff, rubbing. Okay, maybe not. <laughs> Remembering all kinds of things. Okay, all right. 
So in other words, this is something you can go to the Church History Museum and this is venerated. Okay? Because there was something that happened as a result of this handkerchief. The, the Woodruff family sees this as, a, as an eternal connection between the Smiths and the Woodruffs. And they, and they held on to this. Yeah? There's the pocket watch. That locked the bullet. Yeah. Except it didn't. <laughs> well... The, yeah, yeah. Well, John Taylor believed that the pocket watch had stopped a bullet. Uh, it, it it didn't. We now understand it. He was hit from behind, drove him up against the window sill, and the window corner of the window sill broke the the watch. But that's that's the narrative. That's the story we tell. The miraculous watch. We want the miraculous, don't we? Don't we want a religion that has Jesus walking on water and 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 changing water into wine? There is a miraculous we know that is beyond mortal. Okay? Now. Yeah. I need to be the devil's advocate here, but we do not believe that if that handkerchief were taken out of that case, it would start healing. Right. <laughs> Correct. D right? D don't we believe that? That, that in other words, if a, if a, a um, plague were to break out in Salt Lake City, that they'd go, oh, wait a minute, we're out of vaccine, but there's a handkerchief in the Church History Museum. Quick, open it up, grab the handkerchief and start. And I believe the story. Yeah, I do too. That particular time, that's why it happened. What if I told you, though, that President Nielsen was taking the handkerchief down and was going to go wipe people with it? Would that change it? Yes. Okay. Again, and again, it's the combination of person and object coming together with a righteous purpose in mind to create the transformation. Okay? Make sense? All right. I spent long enough set, setting the table here for where we're going. Yes? This question, would the sacred grove fall in for that? Would what? The sacred grove. Would that... Was the was was a stand of trees west of the Smith farmhouse made sacred by the presence of the uh, the Godhead in there? I would think so. That's one of the reasons why. Where the where did the uh, where did the eight witnesses get to see the the plates in the grove? They were going to go back to. They had a temple basically out out back where they were making maple syrup. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, I think it's been made sacred. We wouldn't believe that everybody that goes in there is going to have extra ordinary. I just know that when I have gone there early in the morning, kind of prayerfully considering, I feel way elevated uh, above myself. Now, is that placebo effect because I expected to do that? Or is there something added there when I go on the third trail all the way to the end and then around and then I drop down the rise and the backside? Do I feel something powerful there? I do. And I don't know whether that's me or th there's something sacred about that. I just know that when I walk out of there, I'm I feel changed. Something has occurred in me. Similar to when I go to the temple worthily. Sign of hand, yeah. I was going to use the Kirtland Temple as a converse of that. Um, you know, obviously a sacred place, but one that is no longer under Right? Yeah. Kirtland Temple is a good example. But how many of you have been up on the third floor all the way to the back where uh, Joseph's office was? You, you have to have a really small group these days. You can't have a large group, but a small group. Back in Joseph Smith's office where we know stuff happened. Feel anything different up there? Boy, I did. I went, and again, I don't know. Placebo? 
spirit. But I was like, I know what happened in this room, even though the, the, uh, the guide showing us didn't know what happened in that room. I said, let me tell you what happened in this room. Okay, this is where he saw the Savior. Chris? No, obviously that was set up, the third floor was set up for temple endowments. Yes. They have, yeah, those that have been there, you know, the, the five different rooms, the male door, the female door, and that room would have been the swastika room. Yeah, it was. No question. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, all I know is that I'm elevated spiritually when I've been in that room. Yeah. I don't think it's necessarily a placebo effect. I think it is preparation of spirit. Yeah. On sure. You think there's like a residual spirit that exists in places like winter quarters and the old burial ground in Nauvoo. When bleeding hearts are present. Yeah, and sacrifice was made and blood was shed. You know, you go back into the room in the Carthage jail and you go, oh, this is different. There's something here. Yeah. In touring England, our tour guide took us to the flat where young President Keithley was serving as a missionary and received that letter from his father telling him to forget yourself. Yeah, uh-huh. It's a normal flat, but just what transpired to elevate that young man to complete his mission and go on... Yeah. So suddenly now you're in sacred space. I feel that in the John Johnson home where section 76, the Doctrine and Covenants, you walk into the translation room in that John Johnson home and you go, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there it is. Okay, so that said, and we got 25 minutes. Okay, all that. So, so here's what's happening at uh, for young Joseph. You have to understand well the culture in which he was living, and the role that sacred and and objects were playing in this vicinity. Uh, now. They had, on one side, uh, historians, it's not a great name, kind of called it the magic culture. Uh, there was a belief um, among a lot of people who had brought traditions from Europe, and uh, some of it, and I'll join a set, goes all the way back to Egypt. Traditions of using objects for divination, to, to see things and to find things and to read the future. So it's not just the gypsies in Europe and those, it goes back to Egypt where they were looking in, in uh, goblets and doing divination where they could see the future and see things in objects. Okay, and, and they brought that tradition with them to Upper New England and then into upstate New York where this was the manifest destiny. This nation is, is uh, blessed above all other and it's filled with treasures. Whether, it's, uh, whether it is uh, uh, pirate uh, kid that we thought left silver, or it's the Indian tradition that left gold and silver. There's treasures in here if we can just find it. Now, this divination um, society was especially big in the poorer parts of, of uh, the people. Remember, if you're rich and landed, you have your land, you've got your property, you're going to the Presbyterian church, and you're kind of part of great society. If you're poorer, then bunny digging and look, looking for silver and using seer stones and, and divining rods was like our version of the lottery. 
I may be living poor, but I will get a, I'm going to be blessed to get that one lottery card that's going to make me a millionaire. And now I do the Hail Mary home run. I go from poor to rich and I do it quickly. All we got to do is find the, find the silver, find the gold, and do whatever it takes to do that. And how are we going to know where the gold is? How are we going to know where the silver is? We're going to use divining rods, and we're going to use seer stones. Okay? By seer stones, I can look in them, I can see them, I can see where things need to be. That's the culture. Okay? Oh, very much so. Yep, 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 yep. And, we're, and we'll talk about that in a second. Okay? Now, here's where this gets fun. We have this magic culture of these, of these people that are believing in all of this. But guess what? They're also very, very Christian. So now you're going to get this blending of Christianity and magic culture. Um... And, and let me step back for a second. We've talked about the fact that Nephi and Laman and Lemuel, when they can't get the plates, by the way, brass plates are another object that are venerated. We can't get the, we can't get the brass plates from Laban. Okay, so we're going to go outside and we're going to go, okay, somebody's got to go back and tell him. We're going to try again. How are they going to figure out who's, which one of the boys are going to go approach Laban first? Cast. They're going to cast lots. How does that work? Well, we think that meant whether it's pottery shards like it was at Masada, that's how they do, did their choosing, or we're going to do it with sticks, and what we're going to do is we're going to take the sticks, we're going to throw them up in the air, and it's going to land, and a certain, whoever the one stick is pointing at, they're the one that gets to go. Okay? Now, how do we know that that's the right choice? Because God will direct that lot to point to the right person. The drawing of lots had a divine power behind it that God would direct what would seem like random. Uh, there was a belief also that the ancient Urim and Thummim was very much this way. That it was almost like you had two triangular stones that would be cast down and that God would direct it to tell you yes and no kind of answers. That was the, one of the beliefs about what the Urim and Thummim may have been, that the high priest kept in his ephod in a little pocket underneath the breastplate. Okay, Pull out the Urim and Thummim. Should we go to war? Yes. God says yes. The object said yes, but we believe that God said yes. Does that make sense? Okay. That's why at the time of Joseph, we have a mixing of this believe in magic, divining rods, seer stones, things we can look at that give us magic, and it's combined with Christian belief that God will send it. Now, where would they get that idea? Okay. I don't know if you've ever read this one before. I hadn't. It's out of Genesis. Remember when the, when the brothers of Joseph come and they need to get grain from him and he hasn't revealed himself to them yet? This has caused a lot of Christians heartburn when they look at the Old Testament and it says, And when they were far off out of the city and not yet far off, Joseph said unto his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when thou dost overtake them, say unto them, Wherefore have you rewarded evil for good? Is, this, is not this silver cup in which my Lord drinketh, and whereby indeed he divineth? 
ye have done evil in so doing. You didn't just take any cup, you took my divining cup that I see things in. So there's a belief that somehow, that's why in Egyptian culture all the way back, there's still a, a belief that you can look in water and, and see the future and stuff, and that Joseph appears. So we know that Joseph was having dreams in prison, right? We don't know how he'll see in dreams. One of the possibilities is, is that he had a divining cup or that he was looking in something to see it. Okay? Now, that's a big shift for our modern Mormon brains to wrap around. We just think revelation comes by a shaft of light that sometimes the Lord uses objects. Okay. One more. Oliver Cowdery. Oliver Cowdery's dad was a big diviner. Uh, using a water witcher. We, and he actually found... And do they find water? Yes. Oh yeah, it works. They walk around there and the, and the rod will go... Dig there. Okay? DNC 8. Now this is not all thy gift. For you have another gift. Which is the gift of Aaron. And behold it has told you many things. Behold, there is no other power, save the power of God, that can cause this gift of Aaron to be with you. Wherefore, doubt not, it is the gift of God, and you shall hold it in your hands. Joseph had, or, uh, Oliver had a, a uh, uh, divining rod, a staff that he believed gave him answers. And, the, and God is kind of using that kind of thing. Okay? How are you doing so far? <laughs> Is, is this normally what you'd hear in gospel doctrine? No. <laughs> yeah, I know. But, um, but the powerful thing about this is I need you to see how the Lord uses sacred people and ordinary objects and brings them together to create, to do His purposes. Okay? If you'll use, keep that in mind. Okay? Now, Two of the great books that have come out, and I just wanted you to, if you're wanting to read more about this stuff, uh, uh, Michael uh, Hubbard McKay uh, has written two books. He was the lead on the first Joseph Smith paper project, head editor. Uh, he's now a uh, BYU professor of religion after the, after the paper uh, project ended uh, for him. And, and some of what I'm going to share with you is coming out of Searstones. And, and next week we're going to be talking about what's coming out of that darkness into light. If you're wanting to read more, these are fabulous books. Uh, published jointly by BYU and Deseret Book together. They, wanna, they want you to see uh, what kind of uh, endorsement is coming behind this stuff. Okay? Alright. So that said... So now we start getting in the, uh, the ensign two years ago. Just as the, as the church was releasing the picture of the brownstone, we'll talk about the brownstone in a second. Um, now they're talking about how Joseph used seer stones, his own seer stones, to, to translate the majority of the Book of Mormon. He used the Nephi interpreters a little, but he used his own seer stones for the most part. And, and this is the new artwork that is, you're going to start seeing this artwork associated with seer stones and Joseph's uh, using it, a hat 
to be able to see that block out the ambient light to be able to see the translation. And next week, in the next two weeks, when we start talking about the translation, we're going to be looking at this a lot. Because how the Book of Mormon was translated is more up in the air at the moment right now than it has ever been because of the information we have. Okay, But there you've got Joseph with his hat, uh, the plates are covered up, and Oliver's busy writing. That's probably pretty darn accurate. But when was the last time you saw that image? In your Go to the library and pull out all the pictures you can find of the translation. Eventually you'll see that one and the others are go, about to go away. Yeah? Second Nephi chapter 27 verse 22 and 24 it talks about the quote translation. Yeah. It says read. It doesn't say translate. Hang on to that. Because that because he is going to read, and I'll show you a couple of other things next week that talks about where he's reading across the stone. Okay? Alright. So here's what we know. We don't know exactly when he got them, uh, but we but uh, most conservative guess suggests that Joseph obtained his first seer stone in uh, 1822, uh, two years after the first vision and before Moroni. Uh, he went into uh, he he looked in another seer stone that somebody else had, saw the location of this seer stone, went looking for it, and dug right down about fi 15 feet and found it on the on the property of Willard Chase, his next door neighbor. Okay, he obtains that. Now I feel bad for Joseph because he got he had to do all this digging and looking. Um, I just I just merely went on on Google and then to Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> And got my own seer stone. If you add, if you just put seer stone into uh, Amazon, you will find you can buy seer stones. In fact, if you go to uh, like rock shops in Arkansas, for instance, you can get a whole barrel of seer stones, and they're called seer stones. Okay. Fifteen feet. Fifteen to twenty feet. Yeah. For a young man. Yes. I mean, that's going to be two and a half times his height. you got to dig down. he got to know. All that digging, he's got to come across tons of rocks. Yes, yes, yes. And the researchers, the researchers, by the way, I'm going to hand, hand out, you can take a look at a seer stone. You can hold it in your hand, okay, and just get a sense of it, okay? Um, it's about the right size. And, and the seer, actual seer stones are about this size. By the okay. way, that one's silica and that one's lava rock. That's obsidian. Thank you. Yeah, that, and that is the fo that's the one photograph we have of the actual seer stone. That, that's it. Okay, that some portion of which, and we'll talk more about how much we think the Book of Mormon was actually translated using that seer stone. Um, that the, the question of the researchers was, he's digging down. He's running into, you know, dirt and rocks, dirt and rocks, dirt and rocks. At some point he goes, yes, that's the rock. <laughs> we don't know why. Why he threw away others and said, yes, that's my seer stone. That's the one I went looking for, and this is the one that will work. It's the one I saw in the other seer stone I was looking at. Okay, don't know why. So, we know that he got the brown stone probably in the, on the, um, like I say, he told, he told Willard Chase, I'm, I'm going to dig a well, and he goes, 
uh-huh. And then he digs down, he finds the stone, and he's done. They, they don't believe there was ever a well intended. He was after that seer stone, and he knew it when he saw it, and he, and he took it. Okay. The other one is the white stone. Um, the white stone he got on the shore of Lake Erie. Uh, we don't know when, we don't know. He got this one about 1822, we think. Somewhere in the next couple of years, he obtains the white stone. We have less uh, provenance on where that one, how he knew to go get it, how he got it, and because uh, not only it d does the church own both the brown stone and the white stone, the church has opted, uh, and these researchers, we were watching a video, Cindy and I were last night, they have, uh, they've asked if the church intends to um, show a photograph of the white stone, and so far the church is saying it's too sacred, we, cho we choose not to. And in fact, the researchers believe that the church maybe shouldn't even have photographed this stone. Because it's that, there's a belief it's that, it's that sacred. So were they sacred objects before he obtained them? Or did they become sacred in his possession? We don't know. Uh, the, the belief was on the part of Joseph uh, that these were prepared anciently. So he believed that they were, that's why he's throwing away other rocks and going after this one, because he says this is the one uh, that it somehow was prepared somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. But all of that to me is just a faith-building experience. Gene was having to, you know, whether it was or wasn't, it was like more of like for him, him being built. Yes. Yes. Now, here is the narrative that we've been telling the last few years. And, and we need, and as a result of these books, here's a narrative that we need to change. And I have told this, I have told this narrative repeatedly, and I'm wrong. Um, and that is that we believe that perhaps seer stones were used as Joseph's training wheels for revelation. That by using the seer stones, he used them for a while till he knew what, what the, the spirit felt like and then he didn't need the seer stones anymore. That's been bolstered by the fact that when he finishes the Book of Mormon in 1830, he gives this seer stone to Oliver Cowdery. And Oliver Cowdery will keep it through his life. Joseph keeps the white stone. Uh, two things tell us that the, the seer stones are not training wheels. Number one, Joseph will continue to use the seer stone at other points down the road. He will give, we have records of him giving patriarchal blessings to it. We have a history of him showing the white stone to uh, the twelve in Nauvoo. And that the seer stones were passed to then Brigham Young and on down on the line hanging on to the white stone. Okay? In the scriptures, three times we um, hear about spiritual gifts. I wonder if this is a spiritual gift that Joseph has, yeah. even before he has the gift of the Holy Ghost. It could have been a spiritual gift, yeah, with him. Um, now, the other re reason we know that seer stones are part of our spiritual culture, and we're going to need to normalize it and accept this. And that is section 130 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Talks about the fact that when though anybody who enters the celestial kingdom will have what? A white, stone. a white stone with their name on it, and that this is how they're. This is part of how they are going to see things. Okay, 
that the, the in, in that that is the white stone is part of our it's in the book of Revelation yes right okay so we doing all right so far a little weird yeah I'm, uh, I've been confused over the years that I always thought that the trans translating was done with the Urim and Thummim and, and there is a Urim and Thummim in, in East Texas I don't know if you're aware of that over in Jefferson City in, uh, in, in the museum was that Lyman White's? No, it's, it just it's, somebody else had a Urim and Thummim that's a Jewish Urim and Thummim I would love to go see it. You say it's where now? Jefferson. In, I got to go see that. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah. Do we have any other Latter-day prophet who is saying anything about using the, the white Um. Yes. Uh, when when. Um, when the, when the Manti Temple is completed, uh, and now we have a temple for the, the first time it's available here, um, Wilford Woodruff will go down to dedicate the, 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 the Manti Temple. He will bring with him the white stone. He will go to the altar in the Manti Temple and he will, will kind of reconsecrate the white stone on the altar of the Manti Temple. Now beyond that, we don't have any other history going forward. Um, this stone ended up in the in the hands of the from Joseph F. Smith through Joseph Fielding Smith for about 50 years. They hung on to it, and now and then it is rolled forward uh, from there. Um, oh, we got we're moving slow here. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we might keep in mind the, the, the quote that historians, when they're looking at this, will say, uh, history is a foreign language. It's a foreign land. And so it's hard for us to accept this. But we also need to see that there's going to be a place in our, in our eternities going forward that seer stones are a part of that. Okay? Um, local resident uh, Pomeroy Tucker, who was actually E.B. Grandin's uh, brother-in-law, um, Joseph Searstone was the acorn of the Mormon oak. The origin of that extraordinary political religious institution, Mormonism, is traceable to that insignificant little stone. They understood that it was about Joseph and his Searstones. Okay? Uh, all right. Um, yeah, let's start with this. Okay, now. So that is the transformation of an object. Now let's, I want to spend the rest of the time, and then this is going to obviously carry over into next week. Let's talk about the transformation of a prophet that can utilize the seer stone. Um, I think it's fascinating. If we, if we'll, why don't you go with me, uh, for instance, to Mormon 8. Through all of Joseph's transformation, uh, 
Mormon is going to, or Moroni is going to be his, his uh, guide. He's going to be his advisor. He's going to be his coach. He's going to be a spirit guide to get this boy ready uh, to do what he needs to do to translate. Now, this is no small task. And I believe you start getting the, the initial indications of how, uh, for, for Mormon, remember at the bottom of this chapter, he's going to say, I'm sorry as I'm scrolling through here. Ah, 35. Verse 35. Behold, Mormon 8:35. I speak unto you as if you were present, and ye are not. But behold, Jesus Christ hath shown you unto me, and I know you're doing. Now, in the broad sense, he's talking about Gentiles. I'm going to look and see the Gentiles. I'm looking into your day. I see you. I know you. Now, but if you're Mormon, or if you're Moroni, and you're going to place these plates in the ground, which person do you really want to know better than any other person in the future? <laughs> The person that's going to dig them up. I want to show me Joseph. Let me see Joseph. Let me understand Joseph. I want to know his heart. Because not only is he going to have my plates, but also it's going to be my job to guide him forward. I want to know Joseph. And, I, and my personal belief is that yes, he's talking about Gentiles. But I believe he's specifically talking about Joseph when he says, I speak unto you as if you were present, and, ye are, and yet ye are not. Joseph, Jesus Christ has shown you unto me, and I know you're doing. He knew Joseph in 400 AD. Very well. Well, yeah, and, and, well, and Jacob, Jacob knew who he was. We had uh, Second Nephi, Second uh, Nephi three. You know, his name's going to be Joseph, and it's the same of his dad, and it's the same as Joseph. So Joseph, the diviner, knew Joseph. So they knew, and they knew. Now, here, here's how this works here. So let's go back here to. Um, Now, he's going he's to say, 13, I make an end concerning this people. I am the son of Mormon. My father was a descendant of Nephi. Now, 14, I am the same who hideth up this record unto the Lord. Okay, I'm going to hide that for a second. I'm the same who's, I'm the one who buried this record. Now, in looking ahead to Joseph, and we're going to be talking much more about this apparently next week, because we're not getting there today. He's looking ahead at Joseph, and, and, and we're going to remember what was Joseph's first thought when he looks into the stone box and he sees the gold plates. Gold! Woo! And, and, and we are four months away from having to make that $100 payment on our land. Gold! And he has been involved, we'll talk more next week, that how involved he was with, with uh, treasure hunting and, and money digging for a period of time. It's part of what Moroni has to kind of literally beat out of him. <laughs> okay? As gold. Now, so what you're about to see here is 400 A.D. is a worried prophet. <laughs> 
Hugh Nibley used to say the Book of Mormon was written by a bunch of worried old men. <laughs> yes, it was. Okay, so look at what he's going to say. I am the same who hideth up this record unto the Lord, and what? The plates thereof are of no worth. <laughs> they're not. Joseph, they're not worth anything. Yes, they're gold. But they are worth nothing. Don't try and use them for that. Now, Joseph, by the way, won't see this until he's halfway through the translation process and halfway through the transformation thing. But he's seen this Joseph in the future and he's going, oh, I know, this, I, I have an idea what this is going to be like. Okay? Alright. The plates there are, thereof are of no worth because of the commandment of the Lord. For he saith that no one shall have them to get gain. You can't sell them. You can't use them. You can't charge people to come see it. <laughs> you can get no gain out of these plates. But then listen to what he says. But the what? The record thereof is of great worth. It's the difference between plate and record. The gold plates are worth nothing. The record is worth eternity. Beautiful how he puts those two together. So it's beautiful how he's saying it's not what it's made of what matters, it's what printed on it that is revelation of the Lord. That's of great worth. So it's not the plates itself. It's what's printed in it. Okay, stop for a second. Tell me this isn't us. Take just a second and immediately apply this to you. Tell me this isn't each one of us. It's not our outward that is the value. What is the inside value? What's printed where? In our heart. It's our record, not our plates. It's our heart, not our body. Okay? And I just think this is, that's why this is so fantastic. The record there are, thereof is of great worth. And whoso shall bring it to light, him will the Lord bless. Now, so there, he's going to, he's going to, Joseph is going to have two commands. And, and he must satisfy both of these. And it's going to take all of four, uh, all of about three and a half years, according to my reading, to beat this out of him. He has to have two things in mind. Number one, you got you got to not see the plates as anything valuable. It's in the record. Look at the second one. For none can have power to bring it to light, save it be given him of God. For God wills that it shall be done with an eye single to the glory of God. So it's not just, it can't just be, don't use it for wealth. It has to also be the change of his heart that says, and your eye has to be single to the glory of God. It's not just a physical transformation Joseph is going to need in these three and a half years or so. It's going to be the emotional, spiritual maturity that it's going to take to have the eye single to the glory of God. Does that make sense? Those are the two requirements. And that's why Joseph, and we'll talk about next week, 
will go to the to the hill the first time fully intent on getting the plates fully intending on getting the plates and walks away empty-handed and the next year even worse because he is not yet passed is of no value and your heart has to be single to the glory of God he's not there he's still immersed in his culture and his family and everything going on in his life he's got to be transformed that's why those were interviews because he was failing on the first couple of years yeah he didn't know they were interviews though he fully expected the family sat waiting we're going to talk about next next week the family is waiting in 1825 he's bringing the plates home today he's bringing the plate home and nothing (laughs) sorry I'm not there yet Yes. There, there is that, but he's got to pull him out of the magic culture. He's got to pull him out of that seer stone looking thing that he's good at. By the way, Joseph is really good at the magic culture. He finds stuff. People lose stuff. They go to Joseph. He pulls out the seer stone. He says, it's in your well. We'll go get it. We can't find our plow. Where did it go? Go over to brother so-and-so. He's got it. Okay. He's really good at it. That's why they keep hiring him. That's how he met Emma. <laughs> he meets Emma because he got hired to go down to Pennsylvania and find treasure. And what he finds is treasure. It's just not the gold. It's the girl. <laughs> Some years ago, the church put out a video where the people in Palmyra knew he was going to yeah. get the gold plate yeah. on a certain day. Right. How did they know if he did well, th- that's 1827. We'll talk about that next week. Yes, the town knew by 1827, this is the day. That's because he pulled in one of his money digger friends, possibly to help him go get the plates the next year. And then he marries Emma and tells uh, Lawrence, his name's Mr. Lawrence. He tells him, ah, sorry, I'm not taking you, I'm taking Emma. And Lawrence is kind of ticked. So, so is Willard Chase. So, Anyway. So uh, let, 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 let's finish with this. So in Mormon 8, you've got, you've got Moroni looking through the corridors of history at Joseph. And he's going, the, the plates are of no worth. They're, you can't get gain from them, and your eye has to be single to the glory of God. Then he's going to tell Joseph one other thing. And I just have to think that there's that moment when Joseph is sitting uh, in the house and he's translating. And these words are kind of coming across the stone. And he's going to read this. 16, Uh, well, 15, none can have power to bring it to light, save it be the glory of God. 16, blessed be he that shall bring this thing to light. 17, if they're false, they be the faults of a man. Sometimes that man was Oliver Cowdery uh, in the, the mistakes that were made. Sometimes they were the printer. Okay. Now, 23, Search the prophecies of Isaiah. I cannot write them. Behold, I say unto you, Joseph and others, those saints who have gone before me, who possess this land, shall cry even from the dust. They will cry unto the Lord. As the Lord liveth, he will remember the covenant which he made unto them. And he knoweth their prayers, that they were in behalf of their brethren, generally the Lamanites. They're praying. Think of Enos. Think of Jacob. Uh, think of uh, Mormon. 
I think of Moroni, praying for their brethren that these records will come to light so that they will know the covenants he made with them. They will come to know that the God made promises and he keeps his promises. They're praying like crazy. And who specifically are they praying for? The one who will bring these forward, Joseph. He knoweth their prayers, their behalf of these brethren. These were people, they could move mountains, they could cause the earth to shake, the power of the word, they caused prisons to tumble. Nephi and Lehi. 25. And behold, their prayers were also in behalf of him, that, whom, that the Lord should suffer to bring these things forth. Joseph. Nephi was praying for you. Mormon was praying for you. Enos was praying specifically for you to bring these things forward. Knowing what a challenge that would be and probably also praying for Moroni to bring this boy through the fire. So Moroni is looking down the corridors of time seeing Joseph and reminding him halfway through the translation they were praying for you you are the recipient of their of their prayers and these were people that could move mountains if they can move mountains they can keep your record safe from everybody that's going to try and get them okay So, starting next week, we'll get the plates. But we're going to talk about the process that it takes to get the plates. Um, all right. Uh, final comments before we wrap up. I realize there's a lot of history, but we really had to set the table so that you see fully the world that Joseph Smith lived in and was fully immersed in. And what, and so you're going to understand starting next week what it took to pull Joseph out of that and make him into the prophet he became. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you begin to see real clearly when we talk about uh, what uh, the early church called the the uh, the Church of Believers, and they saw the Church of Believers of those on on all sides of the veils that we are all part of the same kingdom, depending on whether we're pre-earth life here or post-life. We're all part of the same community, community of believers. That's what they called it. So, uh, thank you for being here. Uh, I, I, I bury my testimony that, that uh, the information that we're now having is going to show a Joseph with a lot more warts, but it's going to show a greater miracle, I think, in seeing how the Lord uses him and any of us to get his work to move forward. And, and, and I have a greater testimony this morning even than I did last week as I, as I spent as kind of immersed in all of this for the last week. Just how much I love the prophet Joseph and, and what he became. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.